This is Michael Atlison, Senior Staff Attorney in the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection, and you're listening to the IP Fridays podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 142 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guest is Michael Atlason. He is Senior Staff Attorney at the Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Consumer Protection in the US. And my co-host Ken Suzanne talks with him about the risks of AI, deceptive social media posts and reviews. But before we jump into the interview, I have news for you. A couple of months ago... Beat Weibel of Siemens was guest in this podcast and we talked about the industry patent quality charter that was published just after the EPO, the European Patent Office, published their quality charter, their patent quality charter. And large industry players and larger users of the EPO are voicing concerns about quality at the European Patent Office. And for example, users such as Siemens or Ericsson. And just in the beginning of July, two examiners anonymously came out and confirmed these concerns that the EPO puts quantity before quality. And now, just two days ago, before this podcast is published on Friday... Um, two emails of directors of the EPO surfaced and were published by my Swiss colleague Martin Wilming. I'm posting the link below in the show notes where the two directors are basically, uh, that these are internal emails and the two directors are basically confirming the fears of the industry players that are that have signed the Industry Patent Quality Charter. Members of the Industry Patent Quality Charter have met with EPO officials and also some exchange of documents and emails was there, some discussion. But currently it seems that the EPO has stopped discussions with the members of the Industry Patent Quality Charter. Let's see how this topic will evolve over the next weeks and months. The EPO has just published a new referral question to the enlarged Board of Appeal of the European Patent Office regarding the questions on public accessibility. The number of the new case is G1 of 23. Public accessibility has already been the topic of an earlier decision of the enlarged Board of Appeal, namely G1 of 92. But the current question is, is a product which was put on the market before the date of filing of a European patent application to be excluded from the state of the art within the meaning of Article 54.2 EPC solely because its composition or internal structure could not be analyzed and reproduced by a person skilled in the art without undue burden before that date? 
Also, I was curious how the UPC is doing, and I particularly looked at the languages of the cases that were filed within the last month. The, as you know, the UPC opened its doors on the 1st of June, so there it's now two months into its operation. And more than half of the cases are filed in German language, a quarter of the cases is filed in English language, some cases were filed in Italian language, and one case was filed in Dutch language. However, it's maybe a little bit early to tell, because not a lot of cases are filed at the moment, so the statistics might be skewed. So, let's jump into the interview of today. Our guest today on the IP Fridays podcast is Michael Atlison. Michael is a senior staff attorney in the Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Consumer Protection. Since 2006, he has held a variety of FTC management and staff positions, engaging in enforcement and policy work, as well as consumer education and business guidance. These positions have included acting chief of staff, assistant director for regional operations, acting assistant director for the Division of Consumer and Business Education, and staff attorney in the Division of Privacy and Identity Protection. Currently in the Division of Advertising Practices, Michael focuses on artificial intelligence and online reviews, among other things. He was the primary drafter of two recent commission reports to Congress, Combating Online Harms Through Innovation and Social Media Bots and Deceptive Advertising. Before arriving at the FTC, he worked for various state agencies in New England, for a law firm and a federal judge in New York. He is a graduate of Wesleyan University and NYU School of Law. Welcome, Michael, to the IP Fridays podcast. Thanks, Ken. Happy to be here. Excellent. Michael, what types of matters do you regularly handle at the FTC? I handle... a pretty broad variety of matters these days, spanning from uh, enforcement cases to rulemakings to um, policy efforts and guidance for both companies and for individual consumers. Mm -hmm. And so you joined the FTC in 2006. What led you at that time to join the FTC? Well, I had been working at a couple of different state agencies that um, focused on consumer protection, and I was interested in doing work on um, privacy and other consumer protection matters on a more national scale, and the FTC was clearly the place to go and do that. Mm -hmm. And since 2006, how has your daily work and responsibilities at the FTC changed uh, since you joined? Well, I've had a, a uh, an unusual variety of management staff positions in multiple offices across our um, our bureau uh, over the last fifteen uh, plus years or so, uh, and I've been very happy with the work I've been able to do in the division of advertising practices in the last few years, particularly focusing on um, these fascinating topic areas, including artificial intelligence, and also online reviews and endorsements. Mm -hmm. So with respect to AI, uh, what sorts of AI do you use uh, currently or, or alternatively or want to use in your role? Me now, uh, 
I don't use it at all, at least as far as I know. But mm -hmm. some consumer protection agencies worldwide are looking into AI tools for particular uses, like um, using tools that can scan uh, uh, websites for particular types of content or looking for patterns in consumer complaint data that the agencies have collected. So there are definitely legitimate uses for AI tools in the kind of enforcement and research that agencies like ours do, but there are also a lot of limitations with these tools. For example, if you're simply going out looking for evidence of um, false or fraudulent claims online, uh, AI might not be um, so great at that because and the whole point of fraud is that it's often hidden below the surface. Um, on the other hand, um, credit card companies uh, make uh, very good use of AI tools for credit card fraud because they're looking for patterns in data. So this is going to be a growing area for agencies like mine. Mm -hmm. And let's let's dig deeper into the FTC and AI. Could you discuss the FTC's focus on the use of AI technology and the potential impacts on consumers? Why should consumers uh, care about what's going on these days? Well, on the consumer protection side of our agency, uh, I can't really speak to the antitrust side because um, I don't uh, I, I don't work on that side of our house. Mm -hmm. But in terms of consumer protection, we're looking at AI in a few ways. But first, we're looking at the manner in which automated tools, uh, including AI tools, can impact decisions that businesses make or that consumers make or are made upon them with respect to products or services. And that can include financial matters or employment or safety and, and so on. We're also looking at how the use of these tools can sometimes lead to biased or discriminatory outcomes. We're also looking at false or unsupported claims that are made about these tools when they're advertised to businesses or consumers. And mm -hmm. Finally, for this uh, new set of generative AI tools, including chatbots uh, that uh, are now the public, we're looking at how they can be used for fraud and other harmful conduct. Mm -hmm. Let's turn our attention to your recent article, which is entitled The Luring Test, AI and the Engineering of Consumer Trust. That article is on the FTC business blog at ftc.gov. Can you elaborate on the main point of your article regarding the use of generative AI tools in business? Yeah, and actually, uh, I have three relatively recent um, blog posts uh, about AI and uh, other colleagues of mine um, have others specifically with respect to um you know privacy and, and security issues but that's the, the which you refer and my earlier ones um really have one main point and it's exactly what uh, our chair chair khan said in a, a recent new york times op-ed about ai and that's that there is no ai exception to the laws on the book so put aside the question of what new laws about AI might or might not be good ideas. The fact is that there are some existing laws, like the FTC Act, that 
do cover some of the concerning uses of AI and the hype that surrounds it. So that blog post and the other ones basically talk about these concerns, how consumer protection law can apply and how businesses need to pay attention. And while the posts have received some attention, um, in, in some ways, all we're saying is what we say about everything. Don't deceive consumers or engage in unfair practices. Mm-hmm. And are there any specific examples of where gener- generative AI uh, has been used to, let's say, manipulate consumer behavior that you touch upon in your article? Well, one obvious way is when people use deep fakes or voice cloning uh, to make consumers think they're talking to um, someone they're not. And uh, that has been used and we expect it will be used for, um, uh, you know, for scams and for other kinds of uh, political or social mischief. But there's um, even when they're, these tools are not being used by bad actors, they can be manipulative. Um, and this goes back to the very first chatbot ever invented, which was named um, Eliza. And this was decades ago, and it was very rudimentary. Yes. And um, the, the guy who invented it shut it down after a while because um, the people who were uh, interacting with it were getting too attached. Um, and, uh, and now here we are today uh, with the same um, problems multiplied by millions. Uh, there was even a case reported in the news several weeks ago in Belgium in which uh, a man who was depressed was apparently using a companion bot, which apparently told him that he should resolve his issues by committing suicide, which he did. Now, uh, you know, we can't um, uh, make um, enforcement decisions or policy decisions based on um, one single thing that happens to one person, but that's just an, a, an example of um, apparently ways that these chatbots can manipulate people even when you know you're talking to a machine. Wow. And you raise something called automation bias in your article. What what do you mean by that? And how does it impact consumer trust in AI tools? Automation bias is defined in uh, several different ways, but I think of it as the tendency of people to put more trust in machines, including the recommendations or decisions they give you, than you put in those of other people or your own. This kind of bias has been shown repeatedly in in research, and it certainly applies to decisions made by automated tools and the output from chatbots. And that's a problem because as we know, these chatbots make up facts and they do so with uh, apparent confidence. I'm sure a lot of people listening have read about the recent example of the lawyer in New York who got in trouble for using ChatGPT for legal research. Mm-hmm. And it gave him a bunch of non-existent cases, which he then used in a court filing uh, and got in a lot of trouble for it. Uh, and he claimed that he thought it was a search engine. It's not a search engine. Uh, it's 
it doesn't act with intent or have common sense or know the difference between fact or fiction. It's just predicting what words best go together in response to whatever input it was given. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. is the problem with such bias. Yeah, it, it is definitely something to, to watch and monitor and, and know what you're dealing with when you're when you're when you're using these tools. Yeah, uh, very important. Now, uh, Michael, how can generative AI and we've been using the term gener- generative AI? Can you tell me what that means uh, for those listeners who are not familiar with that? Um, in my mind, generative AI refers to automated tools that create something that didn't exist before. So it can generate text in response to an input or can generate um, an image um, or a video or uh, a voice recording. Mm -hmm. And how can this generative AI be used to customize ads uh, to specific people or groups? Do we know anything about that? Yeah, well, you know, um, many websites and platforms have tons of information uh, about us, and they already use that information to determine, you know, like what ads to deliver to us and what other content they're going to recommend to us. Um, And um, they can now, using AI tools uh, in some automatic way, perhaps using large language models, um, adjust the text of or images in a given ad to appeal more to um, someone based on whatever buckets that person happens to fall into. And that includes whatever personal characteristics that the marketer or the, um, the platform can glean from us based on what we've searched for or looked at on the internet. The, I, a recent report came out that showed how some marketers use several hundred categories uh, in which to sort of slice and dice people and give advertisers options on how and when to serve ads to them. So they could use those categories and depending on which ones come up for a given person, before you serve an ad to them, it can be adjusted quickly and at scale to supposedly appeal more to that particular person. Mm-hmm. And looking at AI, which continues to grow uh, every day, you know, we're reading about it and we're seeing uh, things on the Internet about it um, daily. What recommendations would you give to companies uh, looking to implement AI technology uh, within their businesses while ensuring that they are not deceiving or causing harm to consumers? Any best practices or tips? We mentioned some things in our blog posts, and uh, there's some adaptable recommendations from a recent um, biometric policy statement we issued, uh, including the need to do uh, risk assessments before you decide whether to release uh, an AI-powered product or service, uh, the need to do ongoing monitoring if you do release it to see how it is actually being used uh, and the need to train staff and contractors. There are other agencies out there that may cover uh, a particular field or business and may have applicable guidance too, like the EEOC and the CFPB. There's also generally applicable guidance 
uh, on um, risk management uh, and AI tools from agencies like NIST, which has uh, something called the AI Risk Management Framework and mm -hmm. the Office of Science Technology Policy with its Blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, which also has uh, some uh, some guidance uh, on how to you know, implement the principles there. In addition, there's many civil society and research organizations out there like the Partnership on AI, which have various types of framework and other guidance materials on different aspects of corporate development and use of AI tools. And the one other thing I'd say is that it's important to hire professionals who are diverse. And I mean that in every sense of the word diverse and who know how to test these products. And it's important to give those people um, some agency in your organization and to also consider using third parties who can do honest evaluations and audits as mm -hmm. needed. Yeah, you mentioned the word audits. Um, how should companies monitor and address the actual use and impact of AI tools? What should they be doing? Um, I, again, suggest that people look at like, the NIST framework and other um, resources that have been developed on uh, assessing and auditing these tools. And there are there's a, a growing um, a, a growing sort of businesses that offer to do assessments and audits uh it's you know i think that that profession still um, needs um a little bit more uh stability and standardization but there are people out there who will do that so it's not like um uh, somebody's uh somebody has to you know figure out everything um by themselves mm-hmm Mm -hmm. Now, at the FTC, I understand there's a relatively new office known as the Office of Technology. What is that office, its mission, and how can listeners learn more about it? We've known for a while here at the FTC that uh, it's become increasingly important to integrate uh, technologists and experts in everything we do. And so this new office, which I'm very excited about, it's still small, but it's growing, and it reflects a much-needed strengthening of our resources and expertise relating to the ways in which uh, existing and new technology is going to impact both our consumer protection and competition missions. Um, and the technologists that we've been bringing on board have a range of experience from different kinds of technological disciplines, and they're going to be helping us in investigations and in policy matters. So they'll be supporting the work of attorneys and economists here, but they're also going to be advising and providing um, explanations to the commissioners, to the staff and the public about all sorts of technological issues. Um, if people just Google uh, tech at FTC, they can get to a page that has a bunch of um, blog posts and other information. Uh, about our new office. Excellent. And Michael, we will be putting links to several of the blog posts uh, that we've discussed and that you've referred to uh, in the show notes for our podcast. We're coming near the end. I want to just ask one more question that's regarding enforcement. Are there any um, current enforcement actions regarding AI? Are there things that are that have already been settled? What what things do we have already been uh, that's already out there that people can look up uh, and learn more about? 
Let me mention a few cases that involve um, some kind of automated tool, even if it's not necessarily AI. Earlier this year, we announced a case called WealthPress, which involved a company that uh, deceived consumers about its investment advice services, we alleged, uh, including um, supposedly algorithmically recommended trades. And the company, pursuant to our settlement, is going to be refunding over a million dollars to consumers and paying uh, a $500,000 civil penalty. A couple of years ago, we had a completely different type of case called EverAlbum, which involved an app that um, users could use to upload photos and videos to the cloud. And they claimed that it wouldn't use facial recognition technology on those photos and videos unless consumers opted in. We said that claim was false. Um, and the settlement required the company to delete all of the ill-gotten data and, and this was the first time we ever did this in a settlement, to delete the facial recognition models or any algorithms that were developed from uh, the content that we say the company had allegedly misused. And the last one I'll mention from 2020 comes from our div division, it's called Physicians Technology. And in that case, uh, we allege that a company made deceptive claims that this plastic device, which supposedly used um, smart technology to deliver an algorithm of treatment, um, relieved pain via light therapy. We said, no, no, it didn't. Well, that's been really interesting to, to know. And I know that people will be fascinated to learn more about uh, the new Office of Technology at the FTC. We'll make sure to put a link to that as well in our show notes. So we've come to the end of our podcast today, Michael. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. Uh, thank you for sharing this important information and being on the IP Fridays podcast. Happy to do it. Thanks a lot, Ken. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. 
As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.